Hello, faithful listeners. This is Pastor John Cloudwater from Faith Lutheran Church here in Forest Lake, and we are so glad that you are listening online to our online podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for participating in worship with us as we look forward to the week ahead. reading from 2nd Kings. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on the way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to one side and to the other, until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elisha said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and taking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. The word of the Lord. A gospel reading from the ninth chapter of Mark. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly they were they looked around and saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Uh, 
Thank you for that reading. Uh, quite the, those are really quite the stories. All right. Okay. Okay. Grace and peace to you, my friends in Christ. It's really about passing the torch. Like that's how it happens. One person is ready to move aside and let the other one shine. It's exciting to witness and it often brings about different opinions and reactions about what we can do to acknowledge how special that moment just really is. You know, when someone has been the star, yet the one taking over could become an even bigger star, we start to understand hey, we should maybe memorialize this. It, it could be our way of saying like, ha, huh, I was there and I want to be, able to, to be able to point to that moment. It's interesting that there's not always a universal agreement. You know, some people might be thrilled by what has happened. They, they like to live in the past though. And so no one can be as good as that predecessor or maybe it's just too soon to anoint someone else. But I think it's time. Clearly, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, has seven Super Bowl wins in his career, might need to create some space for the Kansas City Chiefs quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, who could win his third Super Bowl and is only 28. Now, you don't have to agree, but the topic of the greatest of all time is officially up for debate. Is that fair? Oh, thank you for agreeing with me, Taylor. All right, now that I got all my football out of me, the idea and this concept of passing the torch, or as we hear in the, uh, the reading today about uh, passing the mantle, there is a really strong biblical precedent. I mean, it happens all the time in the Bible. The next leader is often uh, prepped, even if they feel like they're unprepared for this moment to be able to assume the new role. You know, Moses doesn't enter the promised land, but he stands there on Mount Nebo and he's with Joshua, who he has prepared, who he has given all of the training to get him ready to be able to take on this leadership. Or I think about how King David and his son, King, his son, King Solomon, how David isn't able to build the temple, but his son Solomon does. And then, of course, we have the story today of Elijah and Elisha, these two prophets, both very, very well known in their own right. But if it comes down to it, Elijah is truly the goat. He is the greatest of all time. He's the most famous and memorable prophet. He's known for performing eight miracles during his life. I mean, who can forget the story of the widow of Zarephath? How the flour and the oil kept replenishing despite a drought? Or then when her son dies, Elijah raises him from the dead. Or when he's put to the test by the prophets of Baal, and it's Elijah who calls upon God to rain fire down from heaven. And then it's Elijah who calls upon God to bring rains to end the drought. You know, we don't lift up those stories very often, do we? And so we might not necessarily remember them, but there was a time and a place where these were the stories that gave the hope and the promise to people who knew that there was something coming. So at the end of Elijah's life, right before he's about to get taken up into a chariot of fire, Elijah pulls a Moses. And his last miracle is that he parts the sea. And Elisha is right there, right beside him. And they, they walk across the Jordan. 
Now, in the lore of the Israelites, you'd have to say that Moses and Elijah are at the very top. And Elisha has pretty big sandals to fill. And he knows that. So when Elijah is preparing to leave, it's Elisha who, who says, look, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Hey, can I have a double portion of your spirit? It might sound like a really weird request. He's not asking to be twice as good as Elijah, twice as famous, twice as powerful. He knows that he needs the spirit of God, that same spirit that fills Elijah. He needs double of that just to be able to keep up with what has been set before him. Elisha wants to be able to serve and have an impact just like his predecessor. This isn't done out of selfish means, but it's more of a request like, hey, I know this is going to be really hard to carry on when you're gone. Can the Holy Spirit work a little bit of overtime to help me out? And so as Elisha is there, he witnesses the ascension to heaven in a chariot of fire as Elijah uh, is, is taken up to heaven. And because of this, Elisha receives this double portion, this double helping of the spirit, this blessing that is upon him. And so in his lifetime, he gets credited with, he gets credited with 16 miracles, double, twice as many. And it's because he trusted in the spirit. But I also think a lot of it had to do with how he got himself ready. He asked a lot of questions. He gleaned everything he could from Elijah before it was too late. Learning how to take over for the goat must have been very daunting, but he did it by asking a lot of questions, by learning, by being prepared for the unexpected. Learning how to do anything can be a challenge, can't it? Ron Berger is a teacher, and he's known for helping people rethink. How do we rethink and learn something through testing and experimenting? Uh, in his book, Adam Grant wrote this book, uh, Rethinking, and he talked about his teaching style as one that saw confusion with materials as actually the ripe time for learning. So like the more confused you are, this is actually better because this is when you want to help that student try to figure it out for themselves. This is new territory to explore. There's a puzzle to be solved. So what does that look like in a classroom? Ron Berger would say that when he would see a confused student, instead of just handing them the answer and making it easy, he'd actually hand them more tools to help them solve the answer through that process of learning how to do something that they were going to be able to, to learn better. Grant described that encounter with Berger as saying that education is more than the information we accumulate in our heads, but it's the habits that we develop as we keep revising, and it's the skills that we build to keep learning. Ron Berger talks about what that process could look like. What does it look like when we're learning a new task or when we're preparing for a new role? And think about how this might apply to our faith when we're trying to understand a new concept. Here's what Berger has to say. I think it's important for us to think about ourselves as learners for a moment rather than as teachers and think if we wanted to learn something new, how would we do that? So let's say you're a 25-year-old teacher or a 45 or 55-year-old teacher, doesn't matter, and you want to learn guitar or yoga or golf or tennis or anything. I mean, how would you do that? Um, it's really unlikely that you would pick up a book and read the book and think, now I'll be good at golf or tennis or 
guitar. Like it's just, that's not going to happen for you from just reading a book. It's also unlikely that you would go to a lecture and have someone tell you how to play guitar or how to play tennis or, um, you would begin with models. You would begin with what does a good tennis player look like? What does a good guitar player do and sound like? What is, what are the yoga positions I need to know? What are these dance things I need to, to learn? And you would study those. Um, you would also begin to critique them, to think about analyzing sort of what is that. You would begin perhaps yourself or with some help to look at what are the features. Can I start breaking down what's making that work? Can I analyze the tennis stroke? Can I analyze the guitar chords? Can I analyze uh, the yoga position and see what are the features in it that I need to focus on more carefully? And then you'd begin your practice, right? You'd be practicing golf, practicing tennis, practicing guitar, practicing yoga, whatever. And you would want critique all the time. You would always want someone giving you those little pointers, this a little bit different, this a little bit different. If you just did this this way, if you, if you adjust your hand here, your stroke will be a lot better. If you position your feet here, it will be a little different. If, you know, you would be feeling like, you want as much critique as you can possibly get from the, a wide range of friends and experts to help you make that next step. Like, that's how you get better. So who are our models? How do we practice our faith? Elisha doesn't take anything for granted. He wants to learn from Elijah. And so you want to know what the first thing is that Elisha does? After Elijah is gone, he picks up the mantle and then he returns to the same place. He returns to the Jordan where Elijah had just parted the waters. And guess what Elisha does? He does the same thing. And in so doing, the prophets recognize what he has done. The prophets recognize that the spirit is with him. They have seen the spirit now move to Elisha, that he has learned from the best and that he knew what to do because he paid attention and he learned and he asked for critique and he asked for that guidance. He asked for Elijah to be his model. What about the disciples? They do the same thing. Jesus does the same thing when he's training them after he's gone. He helps them to understand what it's going to be like. You know, this transfiguration moment, is, it's strange enough that it happens in the middle of his story. It's not this time for Jesus to be ascended into heaven yet. It's this moment of revelation for his three disciples who are there with him that they're truly dealing with something beyond their understanding. Do you think Jesus wants them to be prepared? You bet he does. So Peter responds the only way that us as humans know how to respond. He says, well, Jesus, let's prepare a booth. Maybe we could come compare this to like creating a hall of fame or getting some sort of plaque that says Jesus was here and people can come and see the greatness of this moment. But Jesus, at least in this version, as Mark tells it, waits until they go down the mountain to continue his teaching. And Jesus says, Peter, don't say anything. No booths, no Hall of Fame plaques. Don't even tell anybody, not even the other disciples. Not yet. There will be a time, there will be a place. 
Jesus is constantly teaching, constantly giving feedback and critique, not because he's upset or patronizing us, but because he wants the best for his disciples. He wants the best for us. You know, the truth is, it's not always easy for us to know exactly what Jesus wants, is it? It's not always clear what we're supposed to do and, you know, what we're supposed to say. You know, you can see the confused look on the kids' faces today when I handed them that candy and they're like, wait, you want me to do what? Well, guess what? We're in a sanctuary where we praise God, but we're also in a learning environment. This is a place where we get to learn what God is modeling and teaching us. We get to learn what Jesus wants us to do. And so like I said to the kids, I'll share the same message with you. As we are about to embark on Lent, let's give our hearts for God. Now, I don't have chocolate for all of you, okay? But I tend to think that maybe we tend to hoard the good stuff. Maybe we tend to get scared that what God gives us, we're afraid might run out. We saw it play out with the kids. What if I give this away? What if I'm left with nothing? I can promise you that you won't. You see, faith, it's a participatory activity. When we learn about God, we are in motion. We are doing something. We're sitting here in church, but we can truly know that the Holy Spirit is acting and doing something here in this place. When we pray, when we serve, when we share, when we care for others, when we are mindful, when we think about how we live with purpose and intentionality, how else do you participate in God's kingdom? Faith is ongoing. It, it doesn't stop. It's not like on the day that you were baptized or the day that you're confirmed, you're like a finished product. It's not like we achieve our life goals and then we think, oh, good, now I can just put my faith on the shelf and it's all over now. Faith is alive. And guess what? The true goat, Jesus, the greatest of all time, he has passed that mantle to you and to me. And now it's our turn to be those curious learners, to be those leaders who are in a world that is in search of hope and peace. So, give our hope. Give our hearts to God. When we give our hearts to God, that reward is sweeter than a piece of chocolate, folks. That reward is a life with Christ, who is the greatest teacher, who is with us every step of the way. Amen. Amen.